And let me invite the rest of you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We're just going to look at verses 1 through 10 uh, in our Advent series that Kyle began last week. We were looking at the uh, the gifts of grace and uh, are the gifts of Advent. So uh, last week Kyle started with the giver of the gifts. That's God, and and He's our Father, and He gives good things uh, to us. And so today we're looking at the gift of His grace. So I want you to to listen uh, for that word and 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 hear Paul's emphasis uh, on God's grace in these verses. And then um, you know we'll we'll look into that a little further. Please stand if you're able in honor of God's word. And let me read verses one through ten of chapter two in Ephesians. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Father, would you help us now as we hear your word and seek to apply it and live in it. We pray that we would know more and more of your great grace to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So we'll, we'll just uh, focus in on the, the nature of grace, that it's a, a gift to us. Uh, and, and then after we kind of look at the, the nature of grace, what is it? Uh, I want us to talk about sort of the struggle that we have living in light of it, uh, living consistently a, a life of grace, receiving that grace from God. And so um, those are the two sides of the coin that I want to I look at today. Um, so I'm not going to go through this passage in the sort of the typical way, not, not so much verse by verse. Uh, I want to instead really just zero in on, on Paul's statement that it's by grace that you've been saved. Uh, he repeats himself three verses later. I don't know if you, if you heard that, you know, in verse 5, by grace you've been saved. Then in verse 8, for it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And then uh, in between those two uh, statements that he repeats, he kind of makes a grace sandwich, and he talks about the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So grace, 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 lots of grace. And I, I just want to you know, go on the record. This isn't unusual for Paul. He's not just kind of having a moment. He consistently you know, returns again and again to this theme of God's grace. It, it, it is just something he cannot get over. Uh, and he doesn't want any of the churches that he's writing to to ever get over, uh, so to speak. 
In fact, you can go to every single one of Paul's letters, and within the first two verses, all of his letters are going to say something along the lines of grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Something, uh, that formula, that blessing gets repeated in every single one of his letters. Grace to you. Don't miss the grace of God, right? So, uh, instead of just going more expositionally through these 10 verses in Ephesians 2, we're using them as a little bit of a launching pad to do what I'm, I'm, I'm slightly nervous to do, which is kind of a word study sermon. Uh, I get nervous about word studies because, uh, A, I've forgotten all my Greek and Hebrew in seminary, so it's like thin ice for me, right? Uh, Taylor ought to be doing this word study. He's studying Greek right now. Um, now, the, the, the second bigger reason is I get nervous about sort of the whole word study thing because I've been in situations where I've heard the pastors sort of start to break out the Greek and here it comes. And, and I think most of the time, nine times out of 10, uh, the pastor means well. He, he wants to kind of peel off some of the layers and just kind of go a little deeper and, and, and really understand what's the significance of the word that we're looking at here. But there are just times when I come away going, I don't, did he mean to, I don't, but, but there's sort of this I think, unintended impression that your Bible study methods are inferior and unless you, you know, can really dig in and, and know the original language. Is it a benefit to know the original language? Absolutely. But I don't want to undermine your trust and your English language translation in the Holy Spirit's ability to work in us as individuals and, and help us understand what God's saying. And then we come together as a community and we're blessed as we hear the word and we bounce it off one another, et cetera. So that's a whole other topic, but I just wanted to let you know I'm a little nervous about this, but I think it's worth kind of me pushing past my own anxiety because grace is one of those words that demands our attention. We need to peel the layers off of this word. In his book, What's so amazing about grace, an author named Philip Yancey, uh, some of you know him. If you don't know him, I want to introduce you to him because he's wonderful. Um, 25 years ago or so, wrote a book, What's So Amazing About Grace? Uh, he calls grace the best last word. It's the best last word of the English language because uh, it has avoided a lot of the corruption uh, and dilution of the culture. Like when people hear the word grace, they still have a fairly good understanding of, of what it meant even 2,000 years ago. Like the word pictures we have and the ideas that float around, they're pretty helpful. Um, you know, Yancey says that it is the most surprising, twisting, unexpected ending word in the English language, and it contains the essence of the gospel as a drop of water can contain the image of the sun. It's a great word. It's such a great word, we'll, we'll name people Grace, like my neighbor across the street, her name's Grace. Um, we sing about Grace, we sing Amazing Grace. You uh, 2s got a song called Grace. Um, you know, we, people in England will call the royalty your grace. Um, sometimes here on this side of the pond, we, we, we just say, some, that so-and-so is super gracious. What a, what, a, what a gracious soul, or something like that. We say grace before uh, a really delicious meal, 
And, uh, and there's something in us, even in somebody who's not, you know, doesn't go to church much or maybe doesn't darken the doors at all, still knows, still understands that they need grace after indulging a delicious sin. Grace has a lot of currency in our culture. Do you know what it is? Do we really, do we really know what grace is, though? Um, and, and this is where the word study kind of kicks in and, and becomes really helpful to us. Um, what exactly is grace? Uh, in the original language, it's the word charis. Uh, and, and we would transliterate that in English, C-H-A-R-I-S, charis. Um, and, and, I, and I'm not going to stand up here and pretend like I'm you know, the, the Greek scholar, so I rely on lexicons, and they're super helpful, and they're, they're, they're good tools. Um, and the lexicon definition says, look, grace is that which uh, particularly causes joy, pleasure, gratification, favor, or acceptance for a kindness granted, um, a gift that's been desired and given, right? So Joy, pleasure, gratification, favor for a kindness that's granted or desired. Um, grace is something that's, that's just given freely. It's given, you know, gratis, uh, to use our, our, our Latin der, uh, derivatives there. Um, and it blesses the undeserving recipient. And that's pretty key. The recipient is not getting something that he or she has earned. It's not a paycheck. It really is, you know, something that's unattached to any condition. Um, and and you, I want you to hear that emphasis from the lexicon. There's something, there's something that it's, it's focusing on in addition to the freeness of what's being received. It's also talking about the response that's elicited. Grace incorporates not only the freeness of the action, but the joy of the response, the joy of the recipient. Um, and that's, that's important because there's another word um, in, in Greek, kara, which means joy, and kara and charis are very tightly related. They've got the same word source. Grace and joy are sisters. And so you can't divorce one from another if we really understand what grace is. This is a challenge to us because I think, you know, many of us would probably say, yeah, I get the doctrine of grace alone. I, I understand that God's grace comes to undeserving sinners and that Jesus came, he died on the cross to forgive our sins, and that's God's grace to those who, who weren't looking for it, who weren't asking for it, but he bestows it freely, and, uh, and that's the glory of God, and that's his grace to us, and, 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 and so, Good. I'm glad we know that. If you know that already, that's really, really vital information. But that doesn't exhaust the definition of grace. Because there's a difference between knowing about God's grace versus experiencing it. And that difference, can be argued, is joyful gratitude. So that, that lexicon continues its definition. It goes on to say that God's grace affects our sinfulness and not only forgives the repentant sinner, but brings joy and thankfulness to him. You can't separate grace from joy. You can't separate charis from kara. 
They're related, and we don't divorce them. So what is that, um, does, that, does that challenge your understanding of grace a little bit? On the one hand, yeah, in our head we can know God's grace is this undeserved favor and gift that, that he gives us through Jesus. But does it affect your heart? And does it bring joy and, and gratitude toward us? Uh, Philip Yancey, again, talks about um, the contrast between grace and what God gives us and our response to that versus how the world operates. Uh, I don't know if this is unique to him, but he, he, he keeps returning to the word ungrace to describe the way the world operates. The way the world operates according to something contractual and obligatory, uh, mechanical even. Uh, and, and so ungrace is forgetful uh, of what we have received. Ungrace lives according to this principle of, you know, well, I've worked hard and I've earned what I have. And it forgets what, you know, Kyle was preaching on last Sunday, that everything that we have that's good comes from the Father of lights, comes from above. And so we don't boast about anything that we have that's good. Uh, because it's all something that we receive. And so therefore, everything in our life is a response and, or is a result of God's grace to us. And so that ought to um, you know, increase our joy, ought, ought to increase our thanksgiving because it's all coming down from the Father of lights. Uh, Peter, in his first epistle, describes the God of all grace. You know, that tells us that he gives us everything. Everything that we have is a result of his grace. And so when our hearts um, are, are calloused or when we feel entitled or when we're just kind of distracted and grumpy, um, that is the sign that we are you know, finding ourselves wandering into the, the wasteland of ungrace. That's when we're forgetting the Father who blesses us. That's when we're forgetting that he's the God of all grace. We don't want to hang out in the wastelands of ungrace, but we end up roaming there kind of like we're sleepwalking sometimes. You just wake up and you go, how did I get here? Um, one of the surefire ways that you know that, that, that you're sleepwalking and that you've kind of wandered into the wastelands of ungrace is... Uh, we either lose our joy because, again, you know, joy and grace are connected, or we lose our gratitude or both. Frequently, it's both, right? Because, well, gratitude's another one of those words that's linked with the word grace. Uh, last week, we, we took the Lord's Supper, right? Some traditions will call this the Eucharist. Um, and that's like literally a transliteration of Greek for Thanksgiving, the Eucharisto. The Eucharist comes because on the night that Jesus was betrayed after giving thanks, you know, Eucharisto, he took bread and broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. And we come to this table, this table of thanksgiving, thanking God for his body and blood shed for us. Oh, um, it's, it's the Eucharisto, but isn't that, don't, you can hear it, right? Charis, right in the middle of that. Kara, grace. Joy, thanksgiving are all sisters. They're all tied together. You cannot divorce one from another. And so um, when my joy is lagging, uh, when my thanksgiving is sparse, uh, that's when I'm in the wasteland of ungrace. Hanging out, you know, with all the entitled people, 
uh, all, all the accomplished people, all, that mood, that energy of, you know, yeah, I've arrived and yeah, you know, I've worked hard and yeah, you ought to pat me on the back as I pat myself on the back for all that I've done. Or all the people who are just bitter and sad and thinking that, you know, how come life doesn't treat me better? I work really hard and look at all the people that aren't recognizing all the good things that I've done. You know, that, that, that self-pity thing. It can happen. It, it, it looks a lot of different ways, but it's still the wasteland of ungrace. And along comes Jesus to, to remind us, no, 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 that's not how my kingdom works. You know, if um, maybe you came through those doors that are being repaired, by the way, thankful, thankful for our new doors that are coming. Uh, if you came through those doors this morning and you were full of joy and full of gratitude, that's awesome. That means you're, you're probably hanging out in the place of grace. If you came through those doors and you were sort of grumpy Gus, uh, if you were feeling entitled, if you're feeling sad, sad for yourself, all those things, if you're just feeling ungrateful, then that's okay too. This is not a sermon designed to make people who are struggling to experience joy and are struggling to experience gratitude to make you feel worse. Like, that's not the goal. In fact, what, what does the gospel say? Uh, Luke, in Luke 6, Jesus says, I want you to love your enemies. Uh, I want you to do good. I want you to lend. I want you to do all these things so that you will be sons of, your most, uh, of, your, uh, of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful. Look, if you're feeling ungrateful, just know that God's kind to you right now. He's not wanting to rub our nose in our mess. Instead, he's wanting to lift our chins and lift our eyes up to his reality and to instill and renew in us joy and thanksgiving as our understanding of his grace might grow. And this is a whole point in Ephesians 2 where, God, where Paul is saying things like this about God. This is who your God is. He's rich in mercy. He, he's he has this great love with which he loved us so that in the coming ages he might show these immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is, this is good news to the grumpy and ungrateful, right? This is good news to us. Joy and gratitude, if they're scarce in our lives, it doesn't have to stay that way. Um, and we don't have to just adopt a, a, a passive defeatist attitude. Well, you know, if you knew my life, if you knew all the, the things that I've been going through, you know, you'd be, un, you'd be ungrateful too. You'd be grumpy too. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for the, the pain that we all experience, but we don't have to stay in that place. You don't have to be a resident of the wasteland, we can come into the kingdom and grow in our joy, grow in our gratitude, and grow in grace. This is, this is what Peter tells his audience. Second Peter 3, he says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus really, truly extends to us a life that can grow in grace and its sisters, joy and thanksgiving. So how do we do that, right? I hope you want that. I don't know anybody that doesn't want that. If you don't want that, I need to check your pulse. Like we, we need this, right? How do we grow in grace? I want, I want more joy. I want more gratitude. I, I want to just live a life that's just 
just more like, wow, this is wonderful, all the gifts that we've received. Instead, you know, we get blind, we get ignorant, we get, you know, just so tied into all the things that we think we're entitled to and all the things we think are so unfair. So, let's talk about the struggle of grace. Because it's hard. It's hard to grow in grace. We live in, um, in a culture that has conditioned us to think that the only way to succeed, the only way to kind of have a purposeful life is to live a life of relentless grace. I'm, I'm sorry, <laughs> relentless effort. We're going to get to relentless grace. The relentless effort is this, the, the way the world is thinking that if you, if you just work really, really hard, if you, if you commit yourself, if you apply yourself, if you're consistent, and if you check all the boxes then you can make everybody happy. That's, that's the message that our culture and academia and the, the workplace and social media, that's, what, that's the message that everybody is sending. If you work really hard, check all the boxes, you, you can make everybody happy. But is that true? Of course not. Because nobody can check all the boxes. Ask any Working mother. <laughs> Can you check all the boxes? No, no, that's a lie. Ask any teenager with TikTok. Can you make everybody happy? No, no, you can't do that. It's impossible. You can't do it. And yet culture continues to beat this drum. You know, keep working, keep, keep trying. Relentless effort will be rewarded and you'll get there, you know, right? But no, you won't. That's lie number one. Because the second lie is also happening, which is they keep adding more boxes, and they keep deleting the boxes that we check. We thought, well, if I do these, then I'll be good, and I'll meet everybody's approval, and I'll, I'll, you know, I'll measure up. I'll get there. Um, and then they go, well, no, those boxes don't count now. That was so last decade or last week. <laughs> and then you go over here, and there's, they've added more boxes. Like, golly, I didn't know about those boxes. Like, I do that now? Really? Okay, yeah. Okay. I'll try. Relentless effort. Keep trying. Anybody wonder why is there a picture of a cheeseburger on the bulletin this morning? It's Christmas. It's Advent. Essen, what are you doing? There should be some beautiful piece of art or something Christmassy or whatever. Why is there a gross cheeseburger? A gross McDonald's cheeseburger on the cover of my bulletin. Huh? Anyway. Um, look. The whole relentless effort thing, do you know that McDonald's, like it's ubiquitous. All over the world they've got McDonald's, but McDonald's is facing a little bit of a crisis because apparently people don't find McDonald's cheeseburgers all that desirable. It, it just, it, and last year it ranked 13th in, among like fast food burger chains. In the burger wars, McDonald's is slipping and they've gone to, to number 13th. And so just, I thought I would put this study uh, to the test. I just happened to have um, a McDonald's cheeseburger. Wow. That is, that is just as bad as it was in the first service. <laughs> I was just not a very good cheeseburger. It doesn't help that it's been around since Thursday. Um, <laughs> my chair was wobbly in the office, and I just stuck it under one of the legs. And 
It's been it's pretty steady, but I, I got to find something else to study my chair with now. Kind of dry, right? Give me a second here. So McDonald's has embarked on an ambitious campaign to improve their burgers, to make their cheeseburgers more desirable. Like that's, that was the study. Like which hamburgers are out there that are desirable? And um, any guesses like what was on the top? What, was, what were the, the most desirable burgers? Couldn't, if I, I heard five guys and something else. So somebody in first service said Chick-fil-A. Um, yeah, Shake Shack, Five Guys, In-N-Out, all that good stuff. So McDonald's is trying to like get back into, <clears throat> into the run and become more desirable. They are actually, they have 50 changes that they're making to their burgers. I, I mean, how in the world can you make 50 changes to this? I, I don't know. I, it's all their burgers. Like the Big Mac, um, instead of grilling 10 patties at once. They're only going to grill eight so they can get a more consistent sear on the burger. Uh, they are bringing their cheese up to room temperature. Instead of pulling it out of the refrigerator, they're going to have it at room temperature before they stick it on the burger so that it's more melty. Um, they're going to have a lovely buttery brioche bun uh, with the sesame seeds more randomly scattered so it looks more homemade, like all these lovely little tweaks, like 50 different tweaks to all of their burgers. Just why? to become more desirable, to, to, to gain more approval so that the, the world might, might look at a McDonald's burger with you know, the, the eyes of longing and love. Um, and, and this is this relentless effort. Like all over the world, McDonald's is going to change all their burgers and they're coming to a McDonald's near you by next year just to have a better burger, just so that it can be more desirable, and all of us are McDonald's, and all of us are trying to build a better burger so that the world might approve of us, so that we might be more desirable, and it's relentless, the effort. It's exhausting. And then along comes God's relentless grace to say, you don't have to do that. You can get off of that gerbil wheel. You don't have to keep tweaking your burger. You can just, you can just be. You can just enjoy his grace and let him, through joy and thanksgiving, begin to change us and to make us more and more a reflection of his grace to us. And he does this through his relentless grace. It's, it's, it's gratuitous, right? To use another grace word. His grace is gratuitous. Now, um, this is part of the challenge or the struggle of grace, though, is because there's a part of us that doesn't really want his grace. Like we want to kind of earn our way, and, uh, and we don't, we're not comfortable feeling needy, because grace comes to the needy, and I don't, I don't like that. I don't want to feel needy. Uh, grace comes to the poor. I don't like to be poor. Uh, grace comes to the weak. I want to be strong. Um, grace comes to the powerless. I don't, I don't like that. And yet that's exactly who gets to receive grace. That's a struggle to admit, yeah, that's me. We, we leave a nice tip at the restaurant and we feel like, you know, okay, I'm being generous. Or we let somebody go in front of us in line who's only got two items at the grocery store because I've got my cart and we feel pretty gracious about ourselves. We feel nice. A lot of us are really nice people. You're very nice. Um, but 
Would anybody say that you and I have a reputation for being relentlessly gracious? Like going out of our way to, to, to help the helpless. Like literally, this is your mission to to bless the poor, to care for those who are dependent, and to, to lift up the powerless. Is that a description of our lives, like relentlessly gracious? Do we go out of our way to do those things? Well, I don't, some of you, I, I know, have done remarkable things, but I just want to reassure all of us in this room that whether or not you and I, regardless of how much you and I struggle to be relentlessly gracious, God did all of that. He did all of that. That's what the incarnation shows us, is that he became helpless in order to help us. He he became poor in order to enrich us. He became dependent in order to liberate us. He became powerless in order to strengthen us. And that's all on display in that manger. He became a baby, relentlessly gracious, but it didn't stop in the incarnation, right? Like he went on and, and, and in a crucifixion. He, he who had no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's a relentless grace. He was cursed on that tree in order to bless us. That's a relentless grace. He rose again in order to invite us and to involve us in the new creation that he is establishing. That is a relentless grace by grace that you, you have been saved through faith. It's the gift of God. It's that, that kind of relentless gifting is his constant pursuit of us. He never stops. He never lets up. He never gives up. And he will go to any end, including the incarnation, including the crucifixion, to show us his grace. So um, just finally thinking about Christmas, right? Christmas is lovely. Christmas is, is charming, uh, it's beautiful, it's comforting, and it's disruptive. <laughs> because what Christmas tells us is that that had to happen. He had to become helpless, poor, defenseless, powerless, you know, all those things in order to express his grace to us. And ultimately, he had to hang on that cross. He had to, to lay in that dirty manger. He had to hang on that dirty cross in order to lift us out of our ungrace, to free us from the penalty for what our sins deserve, to liberate us from our powerlessness, to say yes to God and no to sin, to enrich us with the inheritance that is ours in Christ. He had to do that. And that's going to humble our pride in a really good way. The other thing it might do is it might start to stoke those fires of joy and gratitude all over again. When we start to see Christmas through that light, instead of something nice for nice people, Christmas is this announcement of God's invasion into the world to, to help those who are helpless. I'm poor. I am, I am needy. I am guilty. And he, in his relentless grace, kept coming. Nothing would stop him. So what happens is we try to scale Mount Olympus, you know, to please God or be accepted by him or, you know, become more desirable. And we can't. We don't have the energy. We don't have the resources. We, and, and those aren't good days. On bad days, we could care less. But it doesn't matter because we don't have to go up. God came down. 
God came down and he, and he came in the person of Jesus and because we couldn't ascend. We, we couldn't do it. And so um, I mentioned Philip Yancey at the beginning of the sermon. In his book, you know, he talks about uh, Mozart's Requiem. Uh, it's a, like an opera at a funeral. Think of it that way. One of the lines in his Requiem is an echo of the prayer of one of the thieves on the, on the cross next to Jesus where, where the thief looks over, the, the repentant thief, and he says, Jesus, remember me when, when you come into your kingdom. Mozart kind of wrote that prayer into his requiem, and there's a line that says, remember, merciful Jesus, that I am the cause of your journey, which, you know, that's a biblical prayer. That's a good prayer. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. But it's such a good prayer that I think it's worth kind of looking at it from the other angle, the other side of that. Like, God, remember me. That's, that's the prayer of, of the one who, who wants mercy. But we need not only for God to remember us, but we need to remember. Remember uh, calloused and, and entitled and distracted heart, right? That I am the cause of Jesus' journey. Not that, that, that I am the cause of your journey, but that I am the cause of Jesus' journey. And if we do that, to the degree that we do that, grace, joy, thanksgiving, those sisters will celebrate in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for your relentless graciousness toward us. And I thank you that there's nothing that we can do uh, that would stop you from coming and being among us, uh, humbling yourself to, to become uh, a human, and then even obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. And we thank you that you're exalted now and that it exalts you to be known uh, throughout the world and throughout the universe that you are a kind and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. We thank you for all of the grace that you've shown us in Jesus. Please, Holy Spirit, continue to grow us in grace and open our eyes to see that that manger was for us. We needed it. That cross was for us. We needed it, and you gladly gave it. So grow our joy, grow our thanksgiving, and grow our ability to be your image bearers, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.